parachuting right in here, just as I'm parachuting in here this morning uh, to give a message to you all. But I, I think we, we would at least be helped to understand that, you know, there are some folks who, who get all sorts of uh, things out of this book that um, require a lot of exegetical maneuvering. Um, while it's hard to understand, it's not impossible for us to stand the message of Revelation. And I want to encourage you that, that God has given us a revealed message, not some hidden cryptic message that you have to decode using all these uh, decoders. As one commentator put it, the details of prophetic writings are more to kindle hope than to feed curiosity. So that's what I, I hope to do with this text this morning. I believe God wants to do as well, to kindle hope in your heart. So there's real hope here to nourish your soul and mine. And Pastor Cal and I earlier this week um, at the pastor's conference heard a line, uh, a quote like this, the love of the end sets every wheel a-going. What does that mean? The love of the end sets every wheel a-going. I think it was a Puritan author. So he means something like this. The glory of a trophy motivates an athlete in a competition, doesn't it? Or the joy of a newborn child motivates parents to prepare the nursery, uh, helps the mother to put up with the aches and pains of pregnancy. And in the same way, I pray that the hope of a perfect life and a perfect place with perfect people and a perfect loving God will motivate you to run the race of faith with vigor and perseverance. So turn your attention with me to Revelation chapter 21. We'll read the first eight verses this morning. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, I do come to you recognizing that um, we are groaning under the, the weight of sin and death now and the curse. And Lord, our hearts, uh, we, as we sang, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. Lord, we do pray that you would break through the clouds of our minds, of our hearts this morning. Shine the light of your truth. Lord, send out your spirit. Send out your truth. Would they lead us and guide us into the way um, Lord, of real hope and real joy and real peace. Whatever situation, um, I don't know. Lord, you know the, the situations that people have walked in here this morning with. Uh, you know the pains that are felt. You know the struggles. Um, Lord, I don't. But we do pray that you would encourage us all together with a word from you by your spirit this morning. It's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right. So in verse 5, the one seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's a staggering claim, isn't it? It's almost too much to take in. And since we can't cover all things in one sermon... 
I'm going to focus on three components of this new creation here in the text. So first, a new place to call home, and then a new people to be Christ's bride, and then finally a new presence of God with us. A new place to call home, a new people to be Christ's bride, and a new presence of God with us. And I'll repeat those again so you'll have a chance to take notes if you want. But first, a new place to call home. I love reading books. Um, I love good stories with good endings. Good books are the products of great authors. Um, So C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien are two authors that have written some of my favorite stories. But of course, the most beautiful, good, and true story known to man is the story told in this book. And uh, the Bible is the greatest book because it has the greatest author. And as the greatest book, by the greatest author, we might expect that this book would have the greatest ending. And so it does. You see, in the final chapters of the Bible, we're taken with the Apostle John on a breathtaking journey to both the end of all things as we now know them and the beginning of all things as they will be forever. In verse 1 of our text, we read of John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth. This phrase, heaven and earth, is familiar, right? Um, How does the Bible open? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is also a reference to Isaiah 65, which contains an explicit promise that Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, would create a new heaven and a new earth. Here's Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. Behold, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So heaven and earth in biblical language is meant to cover the breadth of all creation. A new heaven and a new earth means an entirely renovated universe. So what happens to the world as we know it? Well, if you've ever watched home makeover shows like Fixer Upper, you might know the first step is what? Demo day, right? Um, So it is with the first heaven and the first earth. In Isaiah, that was, uh, you see that with the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. In Revelation 21, we're told that the first And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's also consistent with 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. Maybe some of you will be familiar with these verses. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And if you stop there, we might be like, wow, you know, that's a really great picture. Thank you for what kind of people do you want to be? It's all going to burn, right? But then he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So it's not just destroy everything, right? But recreate even better. This is stunning. The entire universe, as you and I have always known it, will cease to be as it has been since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. One of the most crucial parts of a good story is the setting. So in Genesis, the setting is that garden, the perfect world in which, as one of my kids' books puts it, there was nothing bad ever and no one sad ever but that was short lived wasn't it sin and death entered the world when Adam and Eve distrusted God's word and disobeyed God's command so that the entire created order was placed under the effects of a curse on account of sin so death as the apostle Paul puts it reigned it's the reason your back hurts it's the reason your job is taxing and tedious Sin and the curse, 
That's the reason relationships are strained or broken. That's the reason that childbirth hurts, or that's the reason we experience illnesses ranging from the common cold to cancer. It's the reason you struggle with seasonal depression, anxiety, addiction, substance abuse, self-control, or whatever. Now, I'm not saying your personal sin, but I'm saying sin as a whole has corrupted all of creation. It's the reason we have to deal with Comcast customer service. (laughs) It's the reason dog poop is mysteriously attracted to your shoe. Um, All of creation is groaning under the curse, right? So, the world as you and I have, 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 as we know it, is the exact opposite of what that book said, right? There is much bad, and there are many sad. That's all we know. That's all we've ever known. But Jesus, the light of the world, has entered into our darkness and broken the power of the curse through his death on the cross so that the darkness will not overcome the light. Sin has been finally dealt with. God's justice has been satisfied on the cross. And the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end is that God's good creation from the beginning would be restored redeemed, renewed, recreated. So we have to ask this question. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but why? Why did he? Because it was a fitting home for those who would bear his image, for us, for you and me. You see, God created an atmosphere fitting for your lungs. He created water to quench your thirst and to regulate your body's temperature and so much more. He created land for you to live on, and food for you to consume. He made the plants and the birds and the fish and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And he created the sharks, which my son loves so very much. Um, I, I know way too much about sharks. Goblin sharks, great white sharks, basking sharks, nurse sharks, mako sharks, hundreds of others, and he could list a ton for you. Um, but God gave us this beautiful, breathtaking, awe-inspiring world full of wonders to enjoy. That's the original creation. Not just a functional space, but a beautiful home. And the promise of a new home, a new heaven and earth, should take our breath away. I've, I've been greatly helped by Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, um, and I would commend it to you if you've never read it. But one of the most important points that he makes is that the new heavens and new earth are not different in substance so much as they are different in quality. Now, I'll give you a minute to process that. Not different substance, different quality. Which means that heaven's not going to be some ethereal cloud place where we'll just sit and play harps all day with the angels. Heaven, according to scripture, will be on earth. It is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. So when God promised Noah that he wouldn't ever again destroy the earth, he said, he would never destroy it by flood, right? But Second Peter says the old heavens and earth will be set on fire and dissolved in the day of the Lord, so that there will be a judgment by fire. I'm not an expert on this um, by any means, but I've, I've read some. Uh, it seems to me the idea of a controlled prairie burn is maybe helpful here. So the Byron Forest Preserve up the road, um, I'm familiar with that Byron Forest Preserve. I've done some running out there. We've walked out there with our kids. And uh, if they do a a burn this spring, I don't know if they're scheduled to do that or not, but have you ever seen this done, the the prairie burns that that they do around here? If they were to do a burn this spring, the prairie would rebound quite beautifully. Invasive species would be eradicated. There'd be room for new growth and rich nutrients in the soil to sustain that growth so that it will be a new and improved forest preserve. It will be qualitatively different. And yet, it'll be, it'll be better, it'll be more beautiful, but it would still be recognizable as the Byron Forest Preserve, right? The contours of the land, the, oh, that, there's that, where that little stream runs through. and It will be new, but it will be the same. In the same way, when the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, we can expect that there will be a familiarity with the new earth. 
even as it is far better than we've ever known it to be. So it will be the perfect home for us. Think for a moment. Will the new heaven and the new earth be less enjoyable or more enjoyable than it is now? Infinitely more, right? So if you're the kind of person that's like, well, I love mountain biking or kayaking or I don't know what kind of outdoor activities you might like. I love going to the beach or going to the mountains or whatever. And you're like, I just don't know if heaven sounds fun. Maybe you've got the wrong idea about what heaven is, folks. Heaven will be on earth. So it will be infinitely more enjoyable than all the greatest joys that you have now. There will be all sorts of wonders to enjoy. Sharks to swim with, mountains and forests, and all sorts of exotic places to explore. Dazzling colors, the richest flavors to discover, and best of all, as my children's book puts it, God will be there. We will live eternally in this new, perfect physical world with the resurrected Christ. And so that leads us to the second part, a new people to be Christ's bride. In verse 2, he, he talks about seeing the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now you might be wondering, as I was, why the city is compared to a bride. That's reasonable. Many have noted that John's use of New Jerusalem might have something of a double meaning here. So while it seems appropriate to interpret the New Jerusalem as an actual city, some people do, uh, for various reasons, it at least seems appropriate to also interpret it as a metaphor for God's redeemed and renewed people, the church, the bride of Christ. Now, why, why do I say that? Well, think about the word bride. It's a personal term. Um, it would be really weird if I said that my bride is the city of Kissimmee, Florida, right? But it is true that my wife, Michelle, her very identity is tied up with the real place of Kissimmee, Florida. When I think of Kissimmee, I think of Michelle. Similarly, it's hard to think of Israel, of God's people, without thinking of the promised land and of that mountain, Mount Zion, and that city, Jerusalem. So the place is important, right? The place is tied up with who the people are. And that's, it's meaningful, right? There's meaningful history in a place. Think, think about this. Think about the place that you grew up. There's a meaningful history there, right? Could be bad, could be good. But the physical place is important. And so a physical place to call home is what we can expect in the new physical world, too. But there is this play of bride city language that comes up again in verse 9 and 10. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Is it the bride, is it the bride is it, or is it the city? Is it the bride or is it the city? It's both. Consider that the 12 city gates bear the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, people. Right. So the city is an image of the covenant people of God from both the old covenant and the new. So that the city, Jerusalem, is both people and place. God's people are called Christ's bride somewhat indirectly in the Gospels, explicitly by Paul multiple times, Ephesians 5, Romans 7, 2 Corinthians 11, several times here in the book of Revelation. You have the biblical imagery of Israel as an unfaithful wife to Yahweh in the book of Hosea, and also throughout the Old Testament where idolatry is spoken of in, ter in terms of like marital infidelity. So we want to, I want to say marriage is a good gift from God. It's a covenant relationship between one man and one woman ordained by God wherein the two beautifully and mysteriously become one flesh. And that's important, right? It's not, uh, sometimes we speak, and it's okay if you've said this before, sometimes we speak of our spouse as our soulmate. But that's not entirely accurate, is it? What we mean to say, my spouse is my soulmate, is that marriage is more than a social arrangement, right? It's more than just sex or a shared bank account. We mean to say that our marriage is fulfilling and that we're committed to this relationship long-term. But the Bible emphatically states that your spouse is not your soulmate. 
Rather, the Bible speaks of your spouse as a flesh mate, right? The two will become one flesh. So your soulmate, dear brother or sister, is none other but Jesus Christ. He was the one you were made for. He was the one whom your heart should desire above none other. So that the best of our marriages only offer a foretaste, a glimpse into the heaven reality and joy of what it means for someone to know you fully, to love you unconditionally, to accept you, and to give themselves fully to you with no reserve. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is your true soulmate. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never cheat on you. He will never hurt you. He will never use or abuse you. I almost threw in the songs of uh, Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up, but I didn't. Um, Some of you may be looking for love in all the wrong places. I don't know. I don't know you, but you might be trying to get from a man or a woman what only Jesus can provide. You, like Bono or me, digging through my refrigerator, still haven't found what you're looking for. So I do throw some song references in there for you. But the wonderfully good news is that you can have Jesus. Jesus can be yours and you can be his. And that's true for all of us here today. To have Jesus, you need only to place your trust in him and all he has done for you. If you believe that Jesus is both God and man, that he lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, died for your sins, was raised in power to free you from the curse of sin and death, and that he's now seated at the Father's right hand and lives forever to make intercession for you. If you believe that, if you put your hope in that, you take that to the bank. If you love him for all he is and all he's done for you, he is yours and you are his forever. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus bids us to come as we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He bids you to come. But the beauty and power of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't We're messy and we're broken, yes. But Jesus is the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness and who binds up our brokenness and makes us whole. Jesus is the one who makes beauty from ashes. He's the one who makes us new by his spirit. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Your nakedness is covered, you're exposed. Sin and shame are forgiven and removed. Some of you... Some of you may need to stop living like the old you and start living like the new person that Christ intends you to be. Because Christ will not have a messy and broken bride. He will have a beautiful bride who is adorned for him. That's part of this bride language. So in John's vision, the city is radiant, verse 11, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The wall is built of jasper, verse 18. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel, verse 19. I'm just, this is, I know we're skipping ahead of our passage. The 12 gates were pearls. The street was pure gold, verse 21. The city is place and it's people and it's beautiful and it's precious. You compare that with Isaiah 61. I will rejoice Greatly rejoice in the Lord, for my soul shall exult in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 62, the nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It goes on, but it's it's just beautiful, this passage in Isaiah. Now, you may not feel beautiful to God today, but before you start despairing over your messy brokenness, and trust me, we're all here. I'm there with you in many ways. Please understand that Jesus is the one who promises to make you new. So don't despair. 
He will do it. The promise to make all things new means that one day you won't struggle with lust or anger or fear or anxiety or greed or self-control or any other besetting sin that might be in your life. You will be clothed with a righteousness like no other. Like you've never known. No sin. Nothing. Now when God looks at you today in Christ, he accounts to you the righteousness of Jesus. But when God returns to make all things new, it will be more than counting Jesus' righteousness as your own. You will be fully cleansed from sin's pervasive presence in your life. I don't know, maybe you've heard this before, but when Jesus comes, he, he breaks the power of sin. And he removes the penalty of sin. But the question is, do you still sin? And we say, unfortunately, yes, I do. That's true for all of us, if we're honest. First John says, if we say we don't have sin, right, we make him a liar. We have, so we confess, and he's faithful to forgive. So we have sin now, but one day, Jesus will remove all sin. It will be broken and no more. And that's incredible news. So life forever in a perfect place as a perfect people for a perfect soulmate. That's beautiful. But it's even better than that. The promise of verse 4 says that there will be no tears, no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. And when verse 5 says that Jesus will make all things new, you can take that promise to the bank. All means all. It includes our bodies. It includes our minds. So no back pain, no cancer, no COVID, no dealing with Comcast customer service, no aging, failing, feeble bodies, no autism, no dementia, no depression. Scripture teaches that we will have bodies and they will be like Christ's resurrected body. They will be familiar to us, yet wonderfully new and infinitely better. So if you go to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says the resurrected body will be so much better than the body we have now. He compares the, the, your physical body now when you die and you're buried to a kernel a seed that's sown into the ground and it's raised, the body that is raised is like what that kernel produces. So imagine with me the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. An acorn is sown in weakness, a small seed buried beneath the sod. But what it will become is a glorious, mighty tree. If our glorified bodies will be infinitely better than the bodies we have now, we might have even greater abilities than we ever dreamed possible. So that the greatest feats of strength and endurance that world-class athletes have accomplished in their earthly bodies will likely be within reach for all of us in the glorified body to come. I imagine there might be some degree of difference in our ability, but think of what it might be like for a paraplegic to run as fast as Usain Bolt. Think about that. A new glorified body, or for those with muscular dystrophy, to have the physical strength of world's strong men like Eddie Hall or Hafthor Bjornsson or Brian Shaw, if you know any of those names. You think of the, the Dutchman Wim Hof, who they nicknamed the Iceman, not from Top Gun, uh, who is able to survive unimaginably cold ice baths or run marathons in the snow in his shorts, um, he's climbing Mount Everest in shorts. Crazy guy. Um, but he's intentionally, in, he is able to manipulate his brain and induce this, this kind of uh, stress response so that he, he doesn't feel cold. Think of uh, polyglots, people who are able to learn and speak several languages. I think of the world champion uh, chess grandmaster, Magnus Carlsen, who once won 10 games simultaneously, played at the same time with his back turned. So he kept track of 640 squares and 320 pieces on 640 squares on 10 individual boards, and he won all 10 games. And you think, 
That's incredible. All the greatest physical, mental accomplishments we've ever known will be like the glory of an acorn compared to an oak tree. So with these renewed hearts and minds and bodies, we will give even greater glory to the God who created us in his image, and he recreates us in the glorious image of his son, Jesus. So I know some of this is speculative, but the the point is to say we know that things will be infinitely better than we know now, and maybe we haven't dwelt on that long enough. I want to encourage you to spend some time thinking about this, apart from the sermon, what will it be like to know no pain, to know a a joy that I've never known in this life? We can hardly imagine it, but we should begin to imagine it. Because God gives us all of these things that he says in Scripture so that we will be encouraged and begin to imagine what this might be. But best of all, when God comes to make you new, God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. So think about that for a moment. What is causing you, what is causing you tears today? That's my question. What causes you tears today? What pains your heart the most? What burdens are you carrying? What fear do you have? Because when Christ returns, that pain, think of it in your mind, that pain, that burden, that fear will be like a bad dream. Gone. And God himself will wipe away every tear from your eye. And he will be with you. And that's the final thing, a new presence of God with man. Heaven on earth with all its joys and wonders, the sights and the smells and the familiar faces, the exotic places, the plants and the animals and the like, maybe superhuman abilities. If heaven had all of that, all of it, but it didn't have God, it wouldn't be heaven. Oh, thank you. I didn't ask you. Um, <laughs> so annoying. Just throw the thing. Um, heaven would be perfect. Uh, Siri wouldn't be spying on me. Now she's going to think I'm talking to her. There would be no perfect home for a perfect bride because there'd be no perfect soulmate. It would be empty and void without God. So without God's presence, it would be nothing short of of just hell. All the wonders of the new creation that we've been talking about. Maybe you're like, is is that what we're supposed to talk about? I thought we were supposed to talk about God. Well, that's this part, right? All those wonders are meant to be experienced in God's presence for his glory and our forever joy. Just like... Uh, I mean, you think about Christmas, right, growing up. If you had all the presents, but you didn't have the giver of the presents, if you didn't have your parents who gave you the presents, both things are important, right? Like, it's important that, that, you know, the joy that comes from a child opening those gifts around Christmas time, that's a beautiful thing. But what's more important is, as parents, when we give our kids gifts, we're there to see their joy and to know that that joy that we've given them increases our love for one another and our enjoyment of this thing that we share. So all of this is to say, you know, we we can spend all this time talking about what will the new creation look like, what will it be like, but the point is, the more joy we experience in heaven with God, the more glory we will give to him. But you cannot have joy without God. How do we know this? Because Augustine said it in his prayer to God, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The psalmist said it in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or in Psalm 16, it says, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's pleasures forevermore at his right hand. 
So the single greatest promise of Revelation 21 is this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God will make his home, his dwelling place with man, fully and forever. Now, you all probably know, right? God is omnipresent at all times. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And you know that maybe that we've been reborn by God's Spirit. You are indwelled by God's Spirit so that God is with you even now. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. But this is a new presence of God with man. It's different. It's infinitely better than what we know now. Revelation 22.4 says they will see his face, speaking of God. One of the things I'm looking forward to in the new heaven and earth is redeemed emotions, right? Perfect feelings and thoughts, because on this side of, of eternity, I have to confess, I know that God is omnipresent. Like, I know that up here. I know that his spirit dwells in me. I know that Christ dwells in me. I know that objectively, but I don't always feel that. Many times you might feel like the psalmist, that God has hidden his face from you, or that he's far away. In the new heaven and earth, you will experience God's presence like never before. I imagine this, this falls really, really short, but it reminds me of our church's feeble attempts to maintain some kind of community during the early days of the COVID stuff. So our church, we live streamed, and Pastor Bruce and I stood in front of a camera, right? And uh, our church members watched from home. We, we joined the Zoom calls um, for prayer or for youth group gatherings. Uh, we were together, sort of, right? Maybe you have had similar experiences. But virtual reality is something of an oxymoron, isn't it? Like, it's real virtually. It's virtually real. <laughs> Which is the same thing as saying it's not real. So we were gathered in spirit, maybe, but we weren't really together. We weren't really gathered. We were virtually gathered. Now, there's plenty of good reasons that our church has continued to keep live streaming. Um, it's, it's never been to provide an alternative to church. You know, um, it's, a, it's a really poor substitute. Um, it's better than nothing. It's something, but it's not the same. And this analogy falls really, really short because Christ is, is really, truly with us now. The Spirit really does indwell us. But the presence of that we will experience with all three persons of the Trinity in the new heaven and the new earth will feel far more real than any experience of God's presence we've had on this side of eternity. Think about this. You will be physically present with the resurrected Christ. So that like the Apostle Thomas, you will be able to see and touch the wounds that brought you healing and peace and forgiveness. The wounds that purchased your pardon. That is the greatest joy of all. And this is the end. This is the conclusion here. Do you, do you, do you want to know this, this joy that I've been speaking of? That's my question. Do you want to know that joy? Please hear the invitation of God today from Revelation 21. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You are invited to quench your thirst for eternity. You're longing for a perfect place to call home. You're longing for a perfect body mind and spirit you're longing for God's presence you can't earn it you can't buy it you can only conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony which is your faith in Jesus Christ church all of your joys all of your pains are merely shadows of what you will experience in the new heaven and earth in the presence of God so whatever pain Whatever fear, whatever heartache you feel, 
or burden you bear today, I want you to know that God sees you. And God hears you. And God cares for you. God is with you now. If you trust him, he is with you now. But God will one day make it all okay. So that you are perfectly safe with him. Nothing can harm you. Death has no power over you. God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Today, you can rest in the knowledge that God will one day make all things new. I'm going to, this is a really, this is different from what I normally do in my sermons. Um, and I'm, I'm going to do something, that's, you, if you want to, you know, if you want to call this sermon over, you can. And this is the postlude. Um, but I wanted to read for, for you from a book written by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, called The Final Battle. Um, if you don't know, C.S. Lewis is The Chronicles of Narnia, right? There's a whole long series of books um, originally written for children. Um, and I, I'm not going to summarize the whole story, but all the important pieces you'll, you'll kind of figure out here. The most important part is um, C.S. Lewis wrote this as something of a thought experiment, a, a parable of what it would be like if Jesus were to become flesh in another universe. So it's not, a, it's not exactly a... Um, it's kind of a metaphor, if you would, for the Christian faith and life, um, but it's not, it's not one-to-one, okay? The important part is Aslan is the lion, right, in the Chronicles of Narnia, who represents the Christ figure, the one who has died to free, you know, Edmund, the, the traitor. The <laughs> so if you know the story, maybe you understand kind of where it's, it's coming from. But as long as you know that Aslan is the Christ figure, um, and then these other characters are, are part of the story, all work. So, I'll read to get. I'll read for us from this story, and I want to close with this. Then they all went forward together, always westward, for that seemed to be the direction Aslan had meant when he cried out, "Further up and further in." Many other creatures were slowly moving the same way, but that grassy country was very wide, and there was no crowding. It still seemed to be early, and the morning freshness was in the air. They kept on stopping to look round and to look behind them, partly because it was so beautiful, but also partly because there was something about it which they could not understand. Do you guys like English accents or no? Should I do the English accents? I don't know. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the high king. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? It would have to be a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like the blue on those mountains in our world. Is it not Aslan's country, said Tyrion. Not like Aslan's country on top of that mountain beyond the eastern end of the world, said Jill. I've been there. If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall? Yes, so they are, said Peter. Only these are bigger. I don't think those ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy. But look there. She pointed southward to their left, and everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly alike. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away. And I, re I remembered, and, and they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. 
Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Ettensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Ker Perivel, sitting on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? For Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said that you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered. All the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. Does this sound familiar, by the way? And of course it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. And soon they found themselves all walking together, and a great bright procession it was, up towards mountains higher than you could see in this world, even if they were to be seen. But there was no snow on those mountains. There were forests and green slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above the other, going up forever. And the land they were walking on grew narrower all the time, with a deep valley on each side, and across that valley, the land which was the real England grew nearer and nearer. The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy saw that a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant's staircase. And then she forgot everything else because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. Then Aslan turned to them and said, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on and on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's a long passage, but I think it gives you a glimpse of the greatness that one day will be when Christ, not Aslan, but Christ, returns to make all things new, familiar, but far better than we know it now. And his presence is the greatest gift of all. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the joy of knowing your Son. We thank you for the good news that Jesus has come to take all of the brokenness, all of, the, all of our sin and sorrow and suffering on himself in the cross. We thank you for the promise that one day you will return to make all things new. We thank you that our sin will be defeated. We thank you that 
you will renew us mind, body, spirit, that you will give us the most perfect place to live in, in your presence. God, we, I don't know the, the hearts and minds of those here today, but for all who trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would give them unimaginable hope, that you would give them the peace that passes all understanding to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as they await with confident expectation your, the fulfillment of your promise to make all things new. Lord, we confess that we have not often dwelt upon, not often thought upon these glorious realities. And we pray, Lord, that you would stir up our hearts because the love of the end sets every wheel a-going. Lord, would we pursue holiness harder because of this promise? Would we fight sin in our lives more faithfully because of this promise? Would we study your word vigorously because of this promise? Would we share this good news with so many more because of your promise to make all things new? Lord, would you, would you look on us, be kind and gracious to us as you have been, bless us with a vision of your beauty and goodness and power. Set every wheel a-going, Lord, we pray. We thank you for all of these things in Christ's name.